Hello and welcome to Friendly Anarchism. This is Catherine. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Candace. Hi, Candace. Welcome back. Hey. <laughs> I'm so glad to have you here. Um, your episode in the last season was one of my favorite episodes, and it's a privilege and an honor to have you back on the show with me. Um, how are you doing? How's the pandemic treating you? Um, it's really boring. um no so let's see how are things going well it's a privilege and honor to have you as a friend Kato working from home homeschooling and the teenagers and a through and a four-year-old now and trying to stay sane and unbored and healthy Mm -hmm. Uh, my partner is working in a local grocery market so we do have some risk factor he's an essential worker mm-hmm. and as you can hear i always have children around <laughs> i love your kids i miss your kids you know how to draw circles <laughs> she's really good at it oh i'm sure she's brilliant there was a COVID outbreak at the job i had um in a warehouse it's terrifying <laughs> so are you not working there now <laughs> no you- i quit i quit i was like i'm just not getting paid enough to deal with this because they were not taking it seriously and uh, even the supervisors weren't masking properly and it's just a whole horrible did not feel safe and at the moment I'm okay so I can um, find another job with the same company in a different place so I'm not totally hard up or anything so I right yeah they have have a responsibility to make sure that they keep a safe environment for you and there's no shade on you for quitting. In, f- in fact, I encourage anybody who's working in an environment that's not protecting their um, safety with regards to COVID or other pandemics or anything related to workplace safety uh, to just go ahead and part ways with that company. Yeah, it's so hard when it feels like there's a scarcity of work, you know, it's pretty a scary thing to do. It's true. So I, I understand why people can't once you have a structural analysis of our society and you see just how bad it is, it's hard to not feel like just so bitter and angry about having anybody forced to work right now. Like nobody should have to be working right now, you know? Or in fact that we should ever have to work to quote from David Graeber's piece to save the world. We're going to have to stop working quote. The system makes no sense. It's also destroying the planet If we don't break ourselves of this addiction quickly, we will leave our children and grandchildren to face catastrophes on a scale which will make the current pandemic seem trivial. If this isn't obvious, the main reason is we're constantly encouraged to look at social problems as if they were questions of personal morality. All this work, all the carbon we're pouring into the atmosphere must somehow be the result of our consumerism. But this is just wrong. It's not our pleasures that are destroying the world. It's our puritanism, our feeling that we have to suffer in order to deserve those pleasures. If we want to save the world, we're going to have to stop working. I've been teleworking since day one, so I'm one of the privileged few, I guess. They say I have a white-collar job, but I work in social services, so um, (laughs) I don't know what you call that. You call that a (laughs) red-collar? I don't know. But that said, even that is really challenging because the nature of the work really does lean on me being able to work with people directly. And the phone is just not a sufficient way to do that. Yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah. And, and why should anybody have to work under these circumstances? I mean, I guess I would say that there's like, we establish that there's an essential labor force, right? Mm-hmm. And that the definition of that has been morphing and uh, since day one to the extent that now essential labor includes uh, retail workers and stores to the extent that it includes what was one that I heard the other day that was like, yep, that's essential. You know, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, it was just pretty far off from what I would consider like, you know, hospital workers, um, right. you know, food production distribution network workers um yeah that people can't live without yeah it's like the the system has decided that capitalism itself is essential it's tied to the economy that there's no other way to have an economy so therefore that's why malls are open because like malls are somehow essential it's like people people really need to be in malls but like by our current system's logic apparently uh that's you know like malls are still open in los angeles when like the morgues are full yeah i mean well it's good because we have to keep those malls active we want to make sure that the buildings stay maintained so that they can serve as secondary morgues (laughs) but really no it's like yeah you've said it very succinctly and and i just like to, to add on to that it's just like capitalism itself has embedded its essentialism and its importance to to the extent that we believe that there's a such thing called the quote unquote V economy. And we believe that it will crash if consumer goods aren't being distributed, purchased and sold. Um, and that may very well be the case, but if anybody transparently and, you know, without bias looks at the question of essentiality, like what is essential and what isn't, we have to start, like any thinking person would have to question <laughs> the value of like needing more. I don't know. I bought this silk robe, needing more silk robes. Um, <laughs> so I myself am, of course, guilty of participating in that consumer model. I just don't know that there's any risk of, uh, of that ever changing anytime soon. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was taken very seriously for a second. There was like a moment of panic where they like everyone was shutting everything down and freaking out when the pandemic had come over and was <laughs> affecting rich people the most because that's who had it. And that's who was with the people who were flying around internationally, people exactly. with money, the business class folks were the ones who had it and everyone freaked out. And then at some point it settled a little bit and the numbers came back that realized the people who were dying the most commonly were black and brown folks, were poor folks. And like when those numbers came in, all of a sudden, a lot of the system itself seemed to relax about like, oh, yeah. it seemed pretty direct correlation. Um, it was pretty disturbing. And it's like that sort of happened, I think, right before George Floyd got killed and all of that popped off. Do you think that the pandemic itself and the connection between the burgeoning like deaths of the black community are related to the uprising over the summer? I mean, I had it looked at it through that lens. I definitely looked at the way um, or the facts that black and brown folks were dying at a higher rate and contracting COVID at a higher rate. And I just sort of looked at it like, well, we live in, 
you know, tend to live in more concentrated households and more concentrated areas, rely more on public transportation, rely more on jobs that are less individualized and more team oriented, mm. that we have always been exposed to the worst chemicals or pathogens or whatever that, you know, the public has to offer just by the nature of the kinds of jobs that we are offered and are ex- and accept. And yes, there was a moment in time when like, uh, when the U.S. recognized COVID was here. Uh, I say it that way because I think it was here. I know it was here before it was actually identified in China. If I didn't have COVID in 2019 in November and December, I don't know what that was, but y'all better watch out. Because <laughs> I was sick for two months and everybody in my family and everybody in my office and everybody in my husband's workplace and we all got sick with respiratory viruses that could not be diagnosed. So, <laughs> oh, wow. um, yeah, and there's people who still have like long term effects from it. And that's here on the West Coast. And the reason I say that, like, I think that it happened here on the West Coast back then is because we have this lovely phenomenon of things called tent cities which are essentially shanty towns of people who've been pushed out of housing by landlords and ownership and like the overburdening costs. And then like the, um, the barriers, like the hurdles of, of societal perfection that you have to like secure in order to be able to rent a place to live. Right. Um, even the worst place. So, and then I work directly on the front lines of that. So um, my interaction with folks who were sick was just really common. And I was always, you know, kind of willing to put myself in that position, not knowing that there was something that was coming that was this serious. Um, And I was always sick, you know, when I was working with people in the office. It was never a question of like when I would be, you know, exposed to something that could be potentially deadly. Like I was just always sick. And so I was careful to wash my hands a lot and, People just thought I was calling in a lot <laughs> until everybody in my office got sick. And I think I, I come to this point because even myself as a quote unquote, well-educated, high-skilled worker, but who is also a black woman here in the United States, my job is supposed to be pretty creative and like autonomous. And I'm supposed to be able to do some project development, but essentially they just want me to be like the mammy. Hmm. of people who can't find housing here in one of the worst housing markets in the country. And um, so like even my quote unquote, highly educated, high skilled labor position puts me at the front lines of pathogens Hmm. that other people don't want to be exposed to. So yeah, I correlate that with this beautiful memory that I have pretty much on a weekly basis of like the richy bitches who I fucking work with. Excuse my French, who are like executives who are fucking dumb as fuck. Um, or maybe they're not, dumb. they're smart in a professional way, but that means that people die. Right. So, um, because of that. Uh, so they're compliant and they're smart and they're professional and they have all the social cues. And, you know, they might even be classically pretty by a white male gaze standard. So, mm. all of those factors that puts them in a position to earn two and sometimes three times more um, annually than I do uh, <laughs> with, with like a very different skill set and sometimes terrible, grave outcomes for the people who we serve. Those folks, the fear in their eyes when like encountering, interacting with even me, 
you know, somebody who makes a middle class income, somebody who is clean, who has a beautiful uh, or had a beautiful office that smelled nice, you know, <laughs> um, and the cognitive dissonance in their brain, which is like they're talking to each other very closely. And I can see and observe that from a distance. But the second one of us gets close to each other, the second one of us gets close to them, you know, the fear that washes over their faces was a fucking glorious, beautiful thing. I was like, <laughs> yes, come get my poor people germs all over you. I've already gotten you sick but, you know. <laughs> so so it like it's something that I reflect on pretty much weekly and it's not that I would like want to give somebody COVID because it's it's a horrible thing and it could kill somebody but it's just the reality that even then like they were worried that their white middle-aged security was going to be threatened by the presence of my black perceived unhealthiness and filth and mm. I just felt you know the punk rocker in me really just <laughs> really really embraced that moment <laughs> you brought us some more interesting things though because it's like the idea of um being feared or having people be afraid of you I've run into that sometimes and it's such a like weird I I remember this one time I was at like a dance thing this like little blonde girl was like trying to be nice to me I was like eight years old she was like, oh, uh, what's that in your hair? It looks so nice. And I was like, oh, uh, it's natural. It's like, I just didn't have washed hair. <laughs> like, I just had greasy, greasy hair. Mm. And then, like, she like <laughs> took a second and she like looked at me and then she went like, ah! and just like ran away. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's stripping her scalp of all of its natural oils. And she'll have to pay for that in thousands of dollars of hair treatments, probably starting right about now just it just <laughs> yeah probably I don't know what's happened to her she's probably doing just fine I yeah. I just uh, I just remember distinctly like the look on her face when it changed from like I'm gonna like be such a good person and like be so nice to this like weird girl mm-hmm. I'm gonna like stoop down and like be kind and just me just being like not into it and her like realization that it was like more than she could handle <gasps> just like run away screaming like you didn't want her charitable kindness. You didn't yeah. want her kind around you in the first place. And I wasn't no. gonna pretend. I wasn't gonna like be like, oh, it's some gel from the store. It's moose. Blah 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 blah. I was just like, I'm just dirty and gross. Like that's why you're over here talking to, down talking down to me. Let's just like admit that that's what's happening. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you know there's a lot to be said about people probably like her. Um, you know, who are probably powerful and like you said, doing just fine in a lot of ways, now embracing this like diversity and equity stuff that and inclusion that everybody is like touting as like the next wave of, you know, in professional America. First of all, why is this just now the wave? (laughs) It's those same bitches that make that the fucking game. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry. It's those same people that make that the game. Oh, it's all right. I think um I yeah it's it's a passion that I have for this like <laughs> I'm just, ex- yeah. I'm just ex- expressing my passion but yeah. then it's also like we're going to pay you lip service we're going to pay for you know pr- prior sins and errors to the extent that we have to demonstrate for the most part 
to in order to not be called racist to not be called classism isn't even a thing that they're thinking about right now mm. you know like, like you work with unhoused people how are they not thinking about that they're not thinking about classism or ableism man and those are big ones yeah, like really and and ones. me saying ableism has gotten me in kind of hot water i mean <laughs> so I, it's just it's a factor of like they're so far behind the curve on so many things but that doesn't really matter to the bottom line and so you know kind of circling back around to your very first question about like did you notice that like the concern and fear of covid and the way that our um, various sectors of the economy shut down, like, around the time that we thought that, you know, oh my gosh, this is just a fast-spreading global pandemic, and it's threatening, like, the uber reach and Tom Hanks has it, and oh my god, you know, <laughs> not Tom to, <laughs> to, like, to, like, next month, a month later, when we know that it's mostly Black and Brown folks who are contracting and dying, and natives as well, which is, like, on, you know, reservations, which, I I haven't had a chance to look at the data, but I just like wonder what the correlation with that between that and like casinos is because mm. I'm trying to figure out like how something, I guess it just takes one person, a pathogen like that can go onto a reservation and do be so devastating. The yeah. devastating part is easy to understand the how it got there in the first place is a little bit more difficult. Right. Um, there's just so little like in my experience being from the Midwest and like experiencing midwestern reservations like maybe it's a little different elsewhere but like the transference of people is just not as fluid as i would expect to need it needs to need to be like be so damaging but once again we're talking about people who are living in concentrated environments people who don't have the resources to like you know self-quarantine within their house away from their family people who you know, will be doing the physical labor that it that is required to make sure that essential things are taken care of. Um, are then hopping on a subway, hopping on a train, hopping, you know, wherever, like into some sort of public transit, going to an apartment complex. How often are the doors knobs? How often are the hallways cleaned? And those, and so like. I could see in my mind that like why it would spread so quickly in those environments, but I had not considered your question, which is, did you notice that the, as soon as we knew that it was mostly killing black and brown folks, that society seemed to ease up on the, on the standards a little, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, I, I noticed it. I, it was pretty disturbing and it, it is like just continued colonialism, isn't it? from BYU about the COVID epidemic and how it's affecting Native and Indigenous peoples. While older people are more likely to die from COVID-19 than younger generations, Native and Indigenous people of all ages have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. American Indian and Alaska Native people are four times more likely than Caucasian people to be hospitalized due to COVID-19, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. To quote from Blue Adams, co-founder of Protect Native Elders and member of the Navajo Nation, they were telling people to wash your hands, try to sanitize, etc., and we knew that the Navajo Nation was going to struggle because around 40% of households don't even have running water, she said. We're the size of West Virginia and we have 13 grocery stores, so that means the first of the month when a lot of families get their money, they go to the stores, which creates huge crowds. 
totally. it's so ironic when you're talking about them being afraid of you being dirty and like contagious and scary <laughs> when it's like well again I watched the rich white people flying around that are the ones that are bringing it to all these places it's probably some rich white person that was went to a casino and the people who are literally <laughs> they're spreading like, it spreading spreading it are like then turning around being like we're so scared of you yeah you like, poor people stay away from us like what I mean, you're the what? ones <laughs> <laughs> oh no i mean my husband and i my partner and i were both cooks we were both you know sous chefs and cooks and we did a like catering work for a lot of years so we know how not to cross contaminate i mean i've always washed my hand after the bathroom i can't tell you how many of these richer people i've seen go out of the bathroom without washing their hands my my four-year-old just said me too i always wash my hands <laughs> she's smarter than a lot of these folks <laughs> I mean, yeah we had to reteach people to wash their hands and people are still refusing to do it that's the that's the shitty thing my partner works on the front lines and he's always like having to teach to tell people that they need to wear a mask into the very small, very neighborhood-centric store oh and that gosh. they should wash their hands. And people want to fight him about it. Why? I know. It's a point of frustration that he lives yeah. with and on a regular basis. That is super frustrating. <laughs> I, I just wonder about our survival instincts sometimes or like our ability to survive and like our, our resilience, like cultural resilience. What haven't we... I don't know where I'm going with this. It just, let's talk. Let's talk about resilience in white people and like. Well, it's a community thing. Yeah, it's. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about Karens because we're talking about like resilience. We're talking about like people being able to like manage difficult situations with grace. So the opposite of that is sort of your quintessential Karen type, right? Right. Because it's like something difficult happens, like you can't get your hamburger made right or whatever. Some like thing that's like not perfect happens. And there's just this epic meltdown of like massive proportions that seems like mm -hmm. super disconnected from reality. We talked about that the last time we talked and I've just been thinking a lot about that. Like what on earth is going on there? Because you had mentioned trauma and I think that's part of it. But I don't think I think that's a very forgiving. Um, I was approach. more forgiving before and I've had this long held like theory that a lot of it is actually childhood lead exposure. A research team from Duke University has, quote, determined that participants exposed to higher levels of lead as children were described as having more difficult adult personalities by family members and friends. Specifically, they found that study members with greater lead exposure were rated as more neurotic, less agreeable, less conscientious than their less exposed peers. Like if we look oh, at the generation who who is currently like inhabits that Karen model that like you know attitude of like self-righteous self-entitlement and like anger and and inability to cope in those scenarios they also seem to correlate with a group of people who like didn't benefit from <clears throat> the lead paint and like the lead mitigation laws I think that I think weren't enforced until like the late 70s I think that's part of it, but I had come up with a new um, theory that I wanted to run past you to see what you thought. Uh -huh. Because the Karens are not just the boomers too, though. It gets younger and I've, oh, yeah. had, I've had my own Karen-y type feelings and moments at times. 
Mm. which I'm like conscious of though but it's like I can I can like feel the Karen in me <laughs> like mm-hmm. what is this where is this coming from and I have this um this theory that like specifically white women our power derives from proximity to white men not from like oh yeah specifically our power and that proximity to white men is about what can we do for white men and how are we useful to white men and so like when you see karens it's often women of an age who are like leaving the their ability to birth children and what happens is you're like losing your value to white men and the other thing oh sure i listened to somebody talking about how misogyny affects white women and black women differently Mm -hmm. like the way that misogyny affects white women is that white women are infantilized and like are totally so it's like okay well and children too like it's the same thing with adultism and children yeah i have this theory that these women are literally acting like children to try and like regain some of that power of like white male violence and protection which is only meant for children the focus is actually on children so like that's a theory i'm just kind of throwing that out there because it's like you're throwing a literal tantrum like a child like you're literally infantilizing yourself your only sense of safety and self-protection comes from getting a white man to care about you to like protect you I would say that that's a workable theory. I wouldn't even classify it as your only sense of, you know, self-protection. Like, there's a lot to be said about, like, the different various waves of white feminism that how, like, and, and ways that they have changed that dialogue and that dynamic for the better among white women. Like, I do not like white feminism for instance but I don't throw it out wholesale because there are some things that like have impacted I will even say whiter skinned women in general across the board that have been beneficial to the plight of women at large that said yeah I mean there's the proximity to to white maleness that like empowers white women there's just like I mentioned earlier, like the value of women under white male gaze. So it's something you were touching on there, which is like, what can they do for them? It's like, how can they be appreciated for them? If we think about it or by them, like if we think about everybody as a commodified individual, which is a lot of the ways I think about it, like we all have a different value as a black woman, (laughs) you know, like the white, the white, feminist labor movement of women like that movement that was like let's make let's go into the workforce we were all I just imagine my elders and ancestors being like where were y'all at like we've been working this whole time like we were doing your work okay (laughs) like literally did you forget about us the child care go for it and the cooking and the nursing (laughs) like we talk about the power dynamic and the hierarchies of of, of humanity and the, the way our society breaks down and the imposed hierarchy of white maleness over everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, the proximity to that gives us power. And I would say that white women have been shrieking like banshees since they became white women, quite frankly, if we really think about it, or since even before that, since they were a fucking monarchy back in Europe, since they, and probably women with proximity to the higher levels of the power dynamics and hierarchies have always been kind of shitty. And 
so we think about suburban white women we think about everybody with their little fiefdoms you know their landlords and they're like in the suburbs and they've got like a picket fence or they've got like a McMansion or whatever, you know, so they believe that they are somehow part of the capitalist power structure. And some of them are, but very many, the fucking vast majority of them are not. And pulling that curtain off as you age, as you experience the world, your fucking cognitive dissonance is being challenged and people tend to freak out when their cognitive dissonances are challenged. That's right. right. Um, And I just also look at it like a sense of entitlement. I look at it like very much like I'm rubber and you're glue. (laughs) It's like being a leftist, being, you know, vocal, being young, being black, being all of those things. Like a lot of the public discourse in in the previous decade has been like, oh, these entitled socialists, oh, these entitled millennials. And it's just like, we're the furthest thing from actually being entitled, you know, or like having this opinion of self entitlement we don't think that we're going to get shit from the world. Yeah. We don't think that anything is happening for us, but they do believe that there is like in a, almost in, it's almost in a dualistic sense. Like if you do the right things, you'll get everything. And then when you get to that point, you realize that it's not quite so simple and that can be uh, really devastating for folks. Not to say that they get a pass for acting like jerks when they get there. Mm-hmm. The rest of us have been out here living in this shit this whole time. We've been telling you. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to listen until you got there. So sorry, Karen. I think that in a lot of ways, like the public discourse about Karen's has really helped significantly because it is now totally frowned upon to frivolously call the cops on people of color. And that is a huge deal. Like I've gone through my whole life worrying about that shit. Like <laughs> about like, I'm not doing anything wrong, but you never know what somebody is going to think I'm doing. Right. Maybe I'm dirty and we'll give them COVID or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So. What has, so what has changed over the last year? So you've noticed tangible changes in your life? I mean, first of all, nobody expects us to go anywhere. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so it's kind of been shitty. Like I've never had social anxiety, but now when I think about going to the grocery store, I'm just like, oh no. Yeah. It looks like it literally could kill you. Yep. It's terrifying. What? Yeah, that, guess, I've been enclaved in my house, so it's just very hard to break out of that, like, yeah, norm. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the law. Let's talk about how there's different laws for different people in this society. I was a little bit naive coming into this project, coming into sort of into activism in general. Like, mm-hmm. my thought was, well, um, it's really interesting to have a show that's like about somebody who's actually an active activist you can like, talk about what's really going on on the ground. I think that's worthwhile. It um, is. Um, and I still believe that. That's <laughs> why the show is still up there. But there is um, I do have a lot of fear because it's like my feeling was like, OK, well, I just won't do anything illegal and it'll be fine. But now I've been out there. It's like, oh, that's not how it works. <laughs> like illegal is an extremely mutable category that like actually everything is kind of illegal like there's laws all over the place that you're just in a web all the time and they just get Mm -hmm. to choose when to pull the strings on who it's not about what is illegal what actions are illegal it's about who is being criminalized it's about who you aggravate right yep it's about being part of a criminalized population it is and then i'm definitely like familiar with being part of a criminalized population i'm also familiar with being able to be on the other end of things and kind of know what the laws are and like 
where the line lies, at least to the extent that I've generally been able to argue myself out of trouble. Mm -hmm. But not everybody has that like background legal education that I have. Not everybody has the like desire to argue as much as I do. (laughs) You know, I have this amazingly polite approach to it, though. I just ask a lot of questions until somebody is really essentially trapped in their own lies. Um, (laughs) But not everybody knows to do that. And if you don't know to do that, and if you don't know what the laws are, and if you're going into things naively, just thinking you're doing the right things, you're very, very likely to get caught up and get in trouble and and even killed. And that's the scary thing. It's like Mm -hmm. the laws don't protect you from getting killed. They do protect you from, well, I'm trying to think of something they protect you from. Um, the laws are created supposedly to protect us from ourselves and to protect other members of society from damages created by us, right? Or other people. Mm-hmm. But what it really is, is about is who has the, the financial or monetary or economic power to subvert the laws. So that's the biggest thing is just mm-hmm. about money. And then who has the identity-based position to get the benefit of the doubt given the legal framework that we have. So there's laws about everything, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest positions about all of that that we're taught in school as we come up is, well, in America, you're innocent until proven guilty. And I just say, prove that, you know, (laughs) show me an instance when that's true. And they almost can never, they, whoever, the powers that be, I haven't really had anybody be able to show me an instance where that was true for a person of color. Legally, this is known as the presumption of innocence, uh, but the Equal Justice Initiative talks about how for Black Americans there is instead a presumption of guilt. Quote, The presumption that people of color are dangerous and guilty is so deeply entrenched that studies have found that support for harsh criminal justice policies correlated with how many African Americans they believed were in prison. The more black people they believed were incarcerated, the more they supported aggressive policing tactics and excessively punitive sentencing laws. Or for a poor person. More than, what is it, 95% of people take plea deals? Like, that's like, if 95% of people Mm -hmm. are taking a plea deal, which means that they're saying that they're guilty about whatever it was that they got pulled in for in order to avoid jail time, like, you really think that our police force is doing that good of a job that every single one of those people is guilty for everything that they're being pulled in for, you know, like that 95% of people are legitimately guilty if they're taking a plea to get out of it. Like, I just don't think that's true. You know, have you personally ever been through the plea deal experience? Yeah, I had to take a plea deal. Yeah. So I've taken one for like traffic violations or whatever. Um, And I honestly like did that tongue in cheek was just like, yeah, you guys I'll plea to whatever is least expensive because that's less on my credit later on when you go to collect the money that I'm never going to give you. Um, But yeah, but I'm an asshole. But most people aren't assholes like me. Most people aren't going around like, I'm just going to subvert the system and say, fuck it. And if I have to, I'll move. You know, (laughs) most people aren't doing that. I have been through that scenario and basically the lingo, the jargon, the intimidation that they use, they stick you in a room with a prosecutor, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're not represented by a lawyer, which I really haven't been. 
And that prosecutor operates in the space of duality where they're like, hey, it's this or this. And I'm like, but what about the truth? And they're like, doesn't matter. Doesn't the matter. truth is really hard for you to prove. But, you know, it's really easy for me to make this really painful for you while you're trying to get to the truth. So um, trials are expensive. Getting a lawyer, if you get a public defender, which they'll offer you if it's a jailable offense, like that person is overworked. And a lot of them, I know a lot of public defenders, there are really people who actually give a shit about their defendants. Mm -hmm. But they do resent people who frivolously go to trial for things that are like kind of minor because Mm -hmm. they have people who are going to potentially go to jail for a long time life or have some other like super negative consequence that they're trying to represent well. And every time they have to represent somebody who frivolously quote unquote goes to trial and requests a public defender that takes away time from that. So like there's all of these moving parts and mechanisms essentially from the very first time I ever went to court understood wholeheartedly that like, oh, okay, this is a mill for poor people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it creates this like, constant downward pressure on working class and poor people to essentially just comply with whatever seems to be the the most minimally harmful thing and a lot of times that's a plea bargain um and they'll say oh you know fines and blah whatever people aren't doing the calculation of how this is going to impact their you know future quote-unquote job prospects or whatever which Know, or like how this is going to impact their housing prospects or how, which it shouldn't by the way or how this is going to impact um you know just their legitimacy over time what if you fall in love with somebody you know whose family is really cares about them and gets a private investigator and finds out you plead you pled you know to a minor offense and then you lose the love of your life i mean that's how like serious the shit i think that that's more serious to me than a fucking job From an article by Emily Yaffe for The Atlantic Magazine in September 2017, titled Innocence is Irrelevant. Quote, Ideally, plea bargains work like this. Defendants for whom there is clear evidence of guilt accept responsibility for their actions. In exchange, they get leniency. A time-consuming and costly trial is avoided and everyone benefits. But in recent decades, American legislators have criminalized so many behaviors that police are arresting millions of people annually, almost 11 million in 2015, the most recent year for which figures are available. Taking to trial even a significant proportion of those who are charged would grind proceedings to a halt. According to Stefanos Bibas, a professor of law and criminology at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, the criminal justice system has become a capacious, onerous machinery that sweeps everyone in, and plea bargains with their swift finality are what keep that machinery running smoothly. Because of plea bargains, the system can quickly handle the criminal cases of millions of Americans each year, involving everything from petty violations to violent crimes, but plea bargains make it easy for prosecutors to convict defendants who may not be guilty who don't present a danger to society or whose crime may primarily be a matter of suffering from poverty, mental illness, or addiction. And plea bargains are intrinsically tied up with race, of course, especially in our era of mass incarceration. You know, like... I I mean, I did lose a job, like, because of my... I was on probation. Yeah. I got got a year of probation, and um, I lost the job after they did the background check, and I... um, what's the word i'm looking for i countered it i oh you uh, you appealed i appealed that's it i yeah thank you i appealed and they eventually did give me my job back and then i quit 
<laughs> just like didn't well I didn't well I didn't want to work for them and the appeal process took a long time and I'd have to I'd had to find a new job but in the meantime anyway so by the time I got my job back through the appeal process it wasn't working in my life anymore it was like a whole draining thing and then you have to like go through your life with people and be like okay like <laughs> like it was just you know it's just really yeah it's like a- I was arrested for something that I never thought I could be arrested for um I was literally like this is your story like I was literally arrested by for something that like I was doing the right thing yeah you know? <laughs> and that doesn't, but that doesn't matter like the right thing is not the point no it's the and legal thing it's the legal thing yeah and like, I got, got arrested for anti-fascism and like now we're looking at a point right now where um we're we have a new democrat as a president and the legal system is maneuvering to take over anti-fascism kind of they're like talking about you know like there was cops that had to actually fight white supremacists at the capitol on the 6th and like that one cop got a huge amount of praise from like liberal spheres for like fighting back fascists and whatever so it's like the state legitimacy is sort of relies on their ability to counter this particular type of a problem which is the white supremacist extremism but in order for the state to regain its legitimacy that means it needs to take that back from the people who are doing it so like i think a lot of people are expecting uh, an fbi pivot and crack down on the anti-fascist left who was doing that and so like i'm sort of right in this moment right now being like okay so like what's going to happen like if, if laws are not real if people are scared of the word anarchists are scared of the word anti-fascist I don't know I'm just like wondering if they're gonna <laughs> I put my name on this and I'm proud of there's that there's gonna be a legal crackdown well I think that like this democratic administration is gonna have a whole lot of unraveling to do in terms of like the weird web of draconian and also like state-based draconian laws that like were allowed to take hold during that last administration which is like a confusing web, right? And, and also like so many of the people who were criminalized during that administration for anti-fascism stuff wasn't, like a lot of it was federal, but most of it, the vast majority would have been under local and state jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so navigating how to provide guidance in those scenarios um, when for basically the last two and a half years or especially the last year the guidance was throw the book at them you know mm-hmm. um is and a lot of people did take i mean i know people who took plea bargains under those circumstances um to things like misdemeanor rioting and you know and all they did was walk with a group of people you know but it was like well okay we'll give you this plea bargain but there won't be any fine and there won't be any jail time it'll just be on your record and it's like yeah but certain employers or you know schools or whatever are gonna look at that and take that more seriously than others you know Mm -hmm. um how does a landlord look at rioting on your criminal record (laughs) that's really important to me i mean like from my lens of the world that i live in it's like it's really hard to get a place to live if you have anything recent on your criminal record. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't have a driver's license for 10 years. I lost an entire career for fucking fucking with the state, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, just refusing to pay them any money. I could have paid them the money, but I just didn't want to. 
<laughs> because because legitimately, like I didn't cost them anything. That was my argument every time I went to court. What has this cost you? Right. <laughs> Why are you saying I have to pay five hundred dollars? Yeah, I haven't harmed anyone. I haven't done anything wrong. All I've done is being poor and black in my neighborhood when for whatever reason, y'all seem to think that you can take and extract fines for profit out of the poor part of town. When I, I happen to work on the rich part of town and those motherfuckers do cocaine in their cars and drive 80 miles an hour. Right. Over. They can afford to pay the fines. Right. We can't. So you're just creating more and more like destitution, more and more desperate poverty in those scenarios, creating like essentially ghettoizing people who are working hard to get out of the ghetto. Right. But like... <laughs> The people with the nice cars doing the cocaine, the rich folks, they have lawyers and they'll cause a fuss and it'll be a whole pain in the ass. And so it's like if you're just like a cop and it's something you want to deal with, that's easy. It's like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's just like, let's take the easy way out. So it's like, how do you like make it hard and like also like not make it worth it? You know, I I have a whole lot of imposter syndrome about being an anarchist, about being an anti-fascist. It's like I'm like kind of like the generic almost. I'm like the like the cheap off brand anti-fascist. Like, I like that you're private label. <laughs> I know I'm like the, I'm like the Kroger version. You're great value, bitch. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> like, I, I just don't know. I just don't know if the FBI cares about my imposter syndrome. I was like, I don't think I've done anything illegal, but you get so paranoid when it's like there's just so many laws out there. Like once you start realizing, like a cop went to and talked before Congress about the fact that it's like you can't even drive a block without doing illegal stuff like wild we live in such a highly tightly controlled society like so litigious i'm confused like so what do you mean you can't even drive a block like without breaking a lot like i'm confused by that i should find that article but he went to speak before congress saying like there's so many laws on the books that you're always doing something illegal basically i cannot right now find the article talking about the cop who spoke before congress about it being impossible to drive a block without breaking a law i did find an article from the chicago tribune right after eric garner was killed um written December 4th, 2014, by Stephen Carter. In it, he says, The legal scholar Douglas Husak, in his excellent 2009 book, Overcriminalization, The Limits of the Criminal Law, points out that federal law alone includes more than 3,000 crimes, fewer than half of which found in the federal criminal code. The rest are scattered through other statutes. A citizen who wants to abide by the law has no quick and easy way to find out what the law actually is. A violation of the traditional principle that the state cannot punish without fair notice. In addition to these statutes, he writes, an astonishing 300,000 or more federal regulations may be enforceable through criminal punishment in the discretion of an administrative agency. Nobody knows the number for sure. Husak cites estimates that more than 70% of American adults have committed a crime that could lead to imprisonment. He quotes the legal scholar William Stuntz to the effect that we are moving towards a world in which the law on the books makes everyone a felon. Does this seem too dramatic? Husak points to studies suggesting that more than half of young people download music illegally from the internet. That's been a federal crime for almost 20 years. These kids, in theory, could all go to prison. Like, oh yeah, I mean, I've I've made that argument, and I was like, and who writes the fucking laws? You know what I mean? Like, especially municipal ones that are just like really, really hard to follow. Yeah, driving a block and you can't even avoid breaking a law. That was an argument I made once in court. (laughs) 
<laughs> really? Did it work? No, but it was fun. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Basically, I was just like, who writes the laws? You yeah. guys. Who enforces them? You guys. Who sets the schedule of fines? You guys. Who do they ask? Not us. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And And I I think more people are starting to be aware of it. It's just like been so blatant lately. I mean, especially like with police is like the most obvious is like all police are completely above the law, apparently. It's like, (laughs) it's just like, even, even, even like average white people are being like, oh man, like that's pretty... (laughs) like that was really blatant like yeah no um it it had to be on cnn before white people would believe us and whole time we're like sitting here i love that think back to the dave Chappelle comedy special where he's just like please believe me you know (laughs) it's just like no it really is happening like we've been saying this for a long time i was in a meeting i was in a zoom meeting the other day with um some folks who were like all butthurt about the siege on the capitol on january 6th um which I have a favorite meme moment I want to share at the end of this. Um, It's like, they were all sad about it. And at the end of that meeting, I put in the chat, I was like, so I just want to let you all know that I've been talking about this for 12 years. I've been talking about fascism as a problem that is burgeoning in America for 12 years. I've been admonished by Harvard political scientists. I've been admonished by people left and right who've said, oh, that is hyperbole. Oh, that is just reaching. And and I'm like, no, this started with the Tea Party. Mm. Prototypical textbook beginning of fascist movement. I was in Kansas. I saw it. I confronted it in person. I was there. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And I've been saying it and people have been saying I'm stupid about that for a really long time. Now, motherfuckers, now what do you think? And I just said, look, it is important to listen to marginalized people. Yeah. It's important. So we've been saying this for the whole time. Policing for profit is a fucking problem. And it's been a problem since the reconstruction of the United States. Uh, we've been saying this for a long time, like over-policing of, of black and brown and, and indigenous bodies has been a problem in the United States ever since police became a thing in the United States. And until it's on CNN or until Rachel Maddow talks about it on MSNBC, the, the vast majority of white people don't believe us about this shit. And I'm telling you, it's here. It's real. So stop fucking waiting for Rachel Maddow to get the story. It's too late once it makes it to the news, okay? Listen to black and brown people, listen to indigenous folks, which requires you to step out of your comfort zone. It requires you, which I don't even know why just being surrounded by white people is your comfort zone anyways. Like that seems fucking ridiculous to me, Mm -hmm. but but like it requires people to look at other people, people who look like me, people who have hair that is textured like mine and bodies that are shaped like mine and not just look at us in ways that we could be more like you. It requires you to look at us in ways that we are another human being walking on this earth, having experiences and by all fucking means, having more colorful experiences, getting at the deeper, raw aspects of the fucking issue that we actually face and then hearing us and not admonishing us and and assuming that we just need to do a little more assimilation in order to get past that it's never gonna fucking work henry Louis gates jr one of the most 
like celebrated and well-respected professors of history in this country was arrested trying to break into his own house that he had lived in for 15 years or something like that because he was locked out of his house. This man can tell you what seven generations prior of your family, where they're from, and the story of their life and the, the context of the history around that story of their life and fucking his neighbors called the cops on him because he was a black man breaking into his own house. If y'all can't listen to us, y'all white people, you know, they can't listen to us and can't hear us and can't be bear witness to that, then I don't give a fuck if you're a hardcore anarchist. Um, versus, you know, the Catherine model, the the <laughs> private label <laughs> generic anarchist. Like, fuck yeah, you know, <laughs> quite frankly. And also, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on these opportunities. And I think that the reason that you have this imposter syndrome feeling in a lot of ways is because so much about whiteness, even white leftism, you know, is about social cues and it's about like the stylisticness of it and it's about being special it's about being famous it's about being you know notable and having somebody quote you and having you know and it's just like dude that is cool and all but your fucking status doesn't help me not die it doesn't help me face fucking police brutality or just like and I think about the spectrum of police brutality as just over policing of black communities to the extent that they're stealing hundreds of dollars from black households every month Mm -hmm. for just petty bullshit that we didn't even you know (laughs) you know and so so yeah so I've been a really adamant um abolitionist for a really long time like policing abolitionists and I've had recently white people who claim to speak for the Black Lives Matter movement, who claim to like represent and support us, admonish me and tell me that like they have a better plan for police accountability than the lingo that I'm using, which in the approach that I take, which is fuck the police, you know? <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think your approach pretty much sums it up and is a very, <laughs> I, I, I can't believe, I mean, I can believe that people are, oh, that makes me mad. I'm sorry. Yeah, like rich fucking 20 year old white girls being like, no, it's, I'm, I have a really important political voice and it's really important that you change the language around so it's not so confrontational. Like, bitch, get the fuck out of my face. You know, oh, shit, well, I'm sorry to mean to yell. <laughs> <laughs> you can yell all you want. That is <laughs> Get the I, fuck off my Facebook thread with that bullshit. Well, I think <laughs> we're in a really dangerous moment right now with anti-fascism in the fact that there is becoming a liberal version of anti-fascism where, for me, what it meant to be anti-fascist mm-hmm. was, to Every understand, day. was to understand the whole structure like that's why i'm an anarchist too it's like to understand that fascism is 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 coming out of a broken system like the whole structure is really violent really fucked up right but there's this other thing that's happening where anti-fascists can also be seen as just like the bare minimum or like i'm against i'm against just literal nazis just don't be a literal nazi and then everything else is fine and so like people that are like pivoting towards with a democratic uh, president now they're now pivoting towards liberal anti-fascism liberal anti-fascism that aligns itself with the police state that doesn't look there is yeah yep there's a reason why the leftists why we on the left communists in particular and i'm not saying we're all perfect because we're not but like have had litmus tests for people who we organize with like have had bare minimum fucking 
like interviews and surveys and vetting and just all of those parts that come into it because we're not I'm not here to organize with you if only thing you fucking care about is not having Nazis siege the Capitol like fuck the Capitol too you know (laughs) the state the whole systems all of these hierarchies you know they are completely devoid of value to me we need a revolution. We need a fundamental change in the status quo. The systems and the, and the powers that be and the structures within the status quo have perpetuated colonialism, violence, fucking pandemics, you know, um, just completely subverting the whole purpose of what it is to be a biological human in every way that they could commodify us. They have and they have stolen from us our fucking like like our generic capacity and like essence of life. They've taken us and stripped us, alienated us so to the extent from our labor. They've alienated us from late from nature. They've alienated us so far that they have people living in shanty towns, tent cities on the street, and they're telling them they can't live there. Where the fuck are they supposed to go? You right. know, <laughs> like so so the whole system that we have that is creating all of these social ills is the problem. And if people don't understand that that is a function of fascism, that Hitler based his entire fucking Third Reich off of the U.S. model right. <laughs> of for yeah. slavery and mm-hmm. for and, and for wage slavery as well, then they don't have the right to wear the banner of anti-fascism. Okay, so we're going to need to stop there. Uh, There will be a part two, which I will be releasing shortly. Thank you so much for listening. Candace is amazing. I'm really excited about the next part as well. If you like what you're hearing and would like to support my work, I have a Ko-Fi for one-time donations. I also have a Patreon, uh, both under the name Friendly Anarchism. You can look me up there. I do need some help covering costs for hosting and for the transcripts. I know it's a tough time for everybody right now, but every little bit helps. Opening and closing music by Kylo Ren from Eugene, Oregon, off their album Decadence, their track Toward the Creative Nothing. Thank you to my current patrons. I really appreciate it. 